Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Jeremy Elkin on All the Streets Are Silent. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past episodes by episode number, book or film title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs, humor, philosophy, or sports category for episode number 164 with Kyle Beachy on The Most Fun Thing, Dispatches from a Skateboard Life. This is Kyle Beachy, author of The Most Fun Thing, Dispatches from a Skateboard Life, and you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Taking another break from books today for episode number six of our Docs on Pod series. This with filmmaker Jeremy Elkin on his new documentary, All the Streets Are Silent, The Convergence of Hip-Hop and Skateboarding, 1987 to 1997. Jeremy, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. So for people who are unfamiliar, what is All the Streets Are Silent? So it's a tough one to uh, pin down in one sentence, but it's basically a 10 year stretch in the downtown scene in New York um, through the eyes of Eli Gesner, who is the center of it all. Um, And it's the convergence of skateboarding and hip hop coming together through the club scene to eventually make uh, a lot of the brands and radio shows and movies and, uh, you know, other cultural moments that happen in the years that follow. You said that Eli is at the center of it all. Who exactly was Eli Gessner back then? Yeah, Eli, um, he was the founder of Zoo York. Um, He helped with the movie Kids. He helped, uh, he was instrumental in a lot of the sort of uh, behind the scenes in the hip hop scene and streetwear and design world. And uh, yeah, I think he, uh, I think he's someone that um, a lot of people are going to be curious about. And how did you end up attached to this project? Eli had done the hand style for a skate video I did in 2012 or 2013. And uh, we stayed in touch. And I'd always known that he had this um, amazing archive of material to work with. Uh, so I, I sort of, we sort of made a trade that if I catalog and digitized everything, that I would eventually be able to um, uh, maybe make a movie out of it or something out of it. And so the starting point, the starting year for this movie is 1987. Certainly want to ask uh, what skateboarding and hip-hop were like at that time, but what was the city of NYC like in 1987? Well, I mean, you know, the film takes place primarily in the Meatpacking District, also near Astor Place and Washington Square, really in those, you know, sort of five to seven block radius by maybe six avenues wide. Um Meatpacking District was the Meatpacking District. It's not a, it was not a luxurious, uh, you know, sort of tourist centric trap with the High Line and everything. It was warehouses and a couple, you know, a nightclub and a couple offices and recording studios. Bjork actually was recording there. And um, yeah, I think it was a uh, downtown was just it was not safe. It was not a destination for people. It was a very different time. It was skateboarding at least, uh, I guess, urban skateboarding still in its infancy at that time, too? In New York, definitely it was an anomaly if you were a skater. Um, I think, like, Gino Iannucci says in the film, if you heard the skateboard and you, and you looked and you saw the person, you 10 out of 10 times you're going to recognize them or at least sort of know them through a friend. Whereas now, you know, longboarders or electric skateboards or whoever, every, every kid has a skateboard. So it's obviously changed quite a bit. 
where was New York City hip hop at this time? It's a big question. Um, <laughs> you know, there were park jams going on. There were, uh, you know, hip hop. I guess in terms of the club scene, if I can answer like, you know, that hip hop was not played in the clubs downtown. And if it was, it was getting shut down because of gang violence or because of, uh, you know, like interborough sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a, it was just not, um, it was not a comfortable thing for a club owner to play hip hop because they knew that it would, it would result in some sort of violence or in attracting a crowd that maybe was different than what they were usually used to, I would say. Well, and as you point out in this film, in the mid to late 1980s, skateboarding was primarily a white thing and hip hop was primarily a black thing. So how do these two sides end up coming together to create such greatness? Yeah, it was uh, a really lucky, I mean, I'm sure there were, I'm sure this was going on all over, but the one that we tell in our story is um, how, you know, Mars Nightclub, which is where the film, uh, the first half of the film takes place. Um, it was a, it was a nightclub that had six stories in the meatpacking district on 13th Street and 10th Avenue and, and West Side Highway. And, um, you know, each floor had a different uh, DJ, but also played different music. So you had um, Moby was on one floor and he was playing, um, you know, house music or, or hip hop. You had uh, uh, Clark Kent was playing rock and roll or whatever else. And each floor you could go and get a different vibe kind of. And the basement, they were playing house music strictly. Um, and I think reggae a little bit. And they, Yuki, uh, one of the Japanese club owners, um, did not, you know, at that point in, in 19, early 1990 or early 1989, he did not want to play hip hop still. And it wasn't until someone found a microphone and plugged it in. One of, one of the promoters, Beasley, found a microphone and they started rhyming on the mic. And as the story goes, KG from the Cold Crush Brothers from the Bronx was there and he took the mic and he's, you know, one of the sort of, you know, hip hop pioneers from back in the day. He took the mic and was, you know, sort of showing everyone how it's done. And then I think word got out and it just got so big that, you know, the line was around the, around the block and Run DMC was coming to maybe perform because there was no place to, as far as I understand, there was no place to um, go and, and perform as a as a hip hop artist without like a, a without like a record deal in front of a crowd kind of thing unless it's like a you know a park jam or something on the street but in a club i think it was really that was like way ahead of its time you know so yuki watanabe is the yuki that you just referenced although he was reluctant at first just how important a figure was he in these two worlds of uh, ultimately coming together yeah, huge. He was the manager for, I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say about Yuki is he has this like, even now, you know, I spoke to him on the phone yesterday for a long time. Hmm. And he even today has like a very like youthful energy. And he's, I don't know how old he is. He's got to be in his 70s now or <laughs> however old. He's still, when you speak to him, it's like you're talking to someone who's like 19. He's very, he's forever curious, you know, and he loves you know, young people and energy and scenes and he just loves people. He loves connecting people. So he played a huge role. I mean, he was, he famously discovered Madonna and, and was, you know, managing Madonna up until the release of her first album when she was signed. Um, he was managing people like Grandmaster Flash and artists like Africa Bambada in the early eighties. 
and he was a one of the managers of Studio 54. So he he's been in the scene for so long. I think by the time the Mars came around, he was a veteran. And this is, you know, 15 years later or so, 12, 15 years later of him being here. Um, I think at that time he was just looking for something new and, and saw that, like, I think he recognized early on that, like, right when he started Mars, that skaters were always running into people and sort of knew everyone and knew all those worlds. And I think if he could give them flyers to pass out or passes and get younger people to the club, it was like, you know, it was a good thing for the scene. And so that's how I think all the skaters wound up going to Mars and, uh, you know, and being a part of it. I, I think it's largely because of, you know, Yuki's involvement and, um, and others like him in the scene. Why did Mars ultimately shut down? Gang violence, which is ironic because they had started it and specifically were like no hip hop, no hip hop. And then two years later into playing hip hop, you know, it got shut down. But I think it's a lot of like, it was probably like, you know, someone seeing someone or, or maybe like a little scuffle or something. And then someone driving by with a gun or what, you know, some, some sort of, it wasn't like, you know, a bunch of people got murdered. It was more like, I think it was just, it was a, it was just scary to be around. I think for that's as far as I understand. So obviously one of the big highlight pieces of this film is all of the raw footage that Eli got over time as a dude who just had a camera with him at all times. He got a, a bunch of badass skateboarding, uh, in the urban setting, and also a number of dudes who are very well known at this point in time early on in their hip hop careers. Guys like Jay Z and Busta, and you know, the Wu Tang guys, amongst many others, by the way. I can't list them all right here, but uh, you do a great job of covering that in this documentary. What ends up on the cutting room floor for you like this when there's just so much that you're having to dig through from probably hours worth of uh, footage that he's filmed over time? Yeah, you know, the story is all from Eli's perspective. So if it tied into our, you know, we, we did an interview that was eight hours long, which was the basis of his narration. And we went in and patched in maybe parts that we were missing if we discovered other footage. But it's all it's all through Eli's perspective. So if it works with his narration, it worked. And you know, like he has he has ama- there's amazing things. Like he made all the titles for the movie Kids, for instance. But he didn't really talk about that in his narration, so we we just didn't include that. Or uh, you know, he you know he he was responsible for so much. But it's also because he was he was pushing and and trying so hard. I think every day back then. Uh, to make something out of nothing. And I think that's the that's sort of the commonality and the the thread in the story. Um, but in terms of the the hip hop guys, I mean, I should say that, you know, just to just not to correct you, but all of the Mars footage or 90% of the Mars footage footage is from Yuki and his wife videotaping. And then after Mars, it's like 90% Eli, the rest of the film. So Eli did shoot a bunch of the stuff at Mars for sure. But like, for instance, the Jay-Z, Yuki didn't know who Jay-Z was. Eli thought he was just like Jazzo's wingman. Yuki's wife was like experimenting with the camera and happened to film that. But that's like totally, no one knew who he was, you know? So um, if anything, they were filming it more for Clark Kent because Clark Kent was the biggest DJ in New York and he had a he he was there once a week. And so when he showed up, it was like a big deal. So and he was the DJ that night, as we as we say in the film, Moby, you know, says like once I saw Clark Kent, you know, perform, it was over for me. He he went into how he went into electronic. Um, so I think, you know, Eli was right place at the right time. He was still there the night of the Jay-Z. But yeah, to have that foresight between the two of them to record 
over the course of 10 years is pretty phenomenal and, and have it and have it just be them and not like uh, it's not like the movie is 40 people's perspective it's really yuki and eli which is like it's crazy you also talked about at the start of this conversation that eli is the guy responsible for zoo york why is zoo york a crucial component to the story that you're telling uh, in this documentary yeah, so the first uh, skate company in New York was shut. Um, and when shut sort of closed in uh, 92, 90, 91, 92, a lot of skaters moved to California. And I think shut just wasn't, they were still sort of stuck in the 80s for lack of better words. You know, it's like they they were making shapes and the types of boards they were producing, manufacturing were a little dated compared to what they were skating in LA. The street skaters in LA were skating thinner boards with tiny wheels and they, you know, baggy clothes. I think the shut skaters were much more like pool skaters and they were, you know, transition skaters. Uh, and so zoo York sort of took, I think the graffiti aspects from shot and it took sort of the, the nitty, the, the rawness from New York and also, you know, brought in a lot of what was going on, I think in San Francisco and LA and merged it into this one company, which, uh, you know, was, sort of everything for people from that era in New York, I would say between like 93 and 97, 98, Zoo York was the coolest company, you know, even more so than Supreme at the time, even though Supreme wasn't really a company, it was a skate shop. I think it was, uh, uh, you know, I think Zoo York was meant a lot for people from the East Coast because there, there weren't other skate companies on the East Coast at that time. Um, and if there were, they weren't like advertising and Thrasher, they didn't have the visibility or videos you know, they weren't really, um, yeah, they weren't like, you know, in, in the, in the, it wasn't mainstream, but in the, you know, I think if you were to go up to a skater randomly in the Midwest or something and ask them about New York skating, they would immediately say New York, New York is the coolest or mm -hmm. whatever, because it was, it was, it was, it was super original. And I think that's what made it stand out. This doesn't relate to the film necessarily, but you've obviously been in the skateboarding world for a long time now. I'm reading uh, Kyle Beachy's new memoir right now. I'm uh, going to be interviewing him a little bit later on this week. And he makes an interesting point about skateboarding at its core and whether or not it is something that is meant to be competitive. Obviously, skateboarding has just exploded in popularity since the 90s with things like the X Games, the Olympics now as well. Do you think skateboarding is uh, an activity that is meant to be as competitive as uh, trying to tally points and figuring out who quote unquote wins at the end of the day? Yeah, it's not how I got into skateboarding. Um, I think it's sort of what it's become. Um, but with that said, like there's, 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 I would say there's like two lanes. There's like the street, I mean, there's probably a hundred lanes, but there's, <laughs> to me, it's like there's the street skaters and the competitive skaters, like skate park skaters. Right. Um, and so you know, I, I got into skating because no one else did it. And because it had an element of graphic design to it in terms of like all the like stickers and the, the, the graphics on the board and the sort of how you could, each one was unique. I think there was a lot of, a lot of things that got me into skating that are nothing like what I think kid, how kids get into skating now. Um, so, you know, I, a lot of it for me is, is the street architecture, like finding a spot that no one else has hit and figuring out how to skate it. Like that was interesting to me, you know, as a kid and just finding new areas of a city and exploring and, and being out and meeting people. And that was skateboarding to me. And I think uh, what the version of it that's in the Olympics is very uh, money driven and it's the complete opposite of, of, you know, the reasons why I got into it. So. 
I don't know, but I, I think there's a place for both. I mean, I think if you're like an athlete skater, you can do that and that's cool. But also if you're, um, if you just, you know, like, like me, like loves the cities and the architecture and the landscape, uh, you know, uh, you could find other things to be into. All right. Last question, Jeremy, what do you hope that people take away from this film after getting to watch it? You know, the other night we were doing a Q and a after the show, after one of the, the showings here in New York and we had ASAP Ferg and Clark Kent and Drez from Black Sheep and Yuki. And, you know, we were all up on stage on, on the front of the cinema and uh, someone, a member in the audience asked, um, you know, as like eight people are recording that, uh, recording it on their iPhones, uh, this woman asked, what can they do to be more present and to sort of take in the era that they're living in, um, you know, uh, in, in a different way, I guess. And, and what can they do differently to sort of try and live up to what they saw in the film, you know? And Clark Kent said, he had a great answer. He said, um, stop trying to make history. Hmm. Uh, he like looked out at the audience and there was a number of people taking photos and, and filming the, the Q and A. And he was like, you're all trying to create history, but you're not actually living in the history. Like we, he was like, you know, for us at Mars, like I didn't even know Yuki saved these tapes or did anything with them. He's like, I was working. I was DJing and I was moving a crowd and I was engaging with people in a way that I think uh, is what he was saying, you know, in a way that, that he thinks uh, people don't do anymore. So I think, you know, re the removing of the iPhone is probably the, uh, the, the key to uh, trying to succeed. Well, it's so true. I mean, so many people, it's not even making history. It's just trying to catch history to, uh, to blow up yourself on social media for 15 minutes. And it keeps so many people from being present. I remember watching the Chicago Cubs winning a World Series five years ago, whenever it was. And for one of the last outs of the game, or maybe the last out of the game, you have all these Cubs fans in the stands in Cleveland, and they're on their damn phones. It's like, nope, nobody's going to give a damn about this grainy footage from hundreds of feet away. Put the phone down, use your eyeballs, and just soak in the moment, right? Well, I think the difference would be if, like, one of those people had this, like, super futuristic technology or they were the only one with an iPhone. The issue is that the entire stadium has an iPhone, so it's no longer special. So the, you know, I think the importance of everyone recording iPhone footage, sure, you could argue it's, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, it's a fun thing to do and to look back on everything. But I think a, a, a great deal of people are doing it to try and be famous in 10 or 20 years from now. And it's a very, or to try and just get a number of likes and comments on their Instagram posts. And it's like, maybe there's more to life than, uh, than doing that. He is Jeremy Elkin. His new documentary is an excellent one. It's called All the Streets Are Silent, The Convergence of Hip-Hop and Skateboarding, 1987 to 1997. You can get it now on demand. Jeremy, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful film. Thanks so much. And thanks to you for listening. Join us next time when we speak with James Whiteside. He is principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater and the author of Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>